Tick, check, check, check. I'm working there? Good. I was thinking of come down on, coming down on the floor, but then it filled up a little bit more. So I was going to ask you guys, as I do every weekend after Christmas, it's always a weird Sunday because we never know how many people are going to be here. I think it was last year there was like 100 of us, and I asked everyone to move down, and I know how much you guys love that. I also know, so I didn't have to do that this year, which is good. I also know you guys were excited when you came in and you saw there's more food to eat on the tables. You were like, oh gosh, I thought we wouldn't have to eat for once. I know everyone's full from the last few days. Maybe we shouldn't have planned communion today, but we did. We thought through about two months ago and we said, let's do this the weekend of Thanksgiving. And a lot of you um, were out of town that weekend. And this is also a weekend a lot of people are out of town. And we thought we'd get everybody at least one of those two weekends to be included at the table. That's what we're going to talk about today is being included at the table. I really like this image. Um, and I sent it to John, and then he said, man, that guy really has hairy knuckles. And I said, John always has some, some wisecrack on, you know, things I think of or things I come up with. So now that I've drawn your attention to that, I'm sure you're not going to be able to get past it either. I don't think it's that bad. Um, we're going to be doing communion today. Uh, Dave Beatty shared last time we did communion, and I'm, he gave a great setup. And I'm going to try and approach his wisdom level. I know I won't get there. I think Dave focused a bit more on the elements, and I'm going to talk about the significance, the symbolism of of the table um, that Jesus sets, uh, literally and and figuratively, I guess, um, this morning. So I'm really excited. Glad you're all here. Like I said, if you're visiting from out of town, it's it's always good to have uh, new friends visiting. And I always think it's a unique and special morning when we can do communion together. We're stepping into one of the oldest traditions we have as the church, uh, practicing communion together. And so there's something unique that we claim together when we do that uh, this morning. You know, I, I say this sometimes when, when we've done communion with the college group and, and other groups. We don't realize sometimes that the communion, the, the meal of remembrance, was the center of worship for years and years and years in the church. You know, now we have a structure that um, lends itself a lot more to music and songs and singing. And uh, that's been in place in the church for a long time. But for a long time... Uh, the center of coming together and meeting together as the church was always, was always this meal of remembrance, the Lord's Supper, communion. So there's something incredible about that. A few questions that we're going to look at together before we, before we do communion. One, I'm going to ask you about the table, a table you sat at this Christmas season. Maybe it was Christmas dinner, maybe it was Christmas Eve dinner, maybe it was McDonald's yesterday, um, if you can't come up with something better. But I'm going to ask you what your table looked like at your Christmas celebration. Okay, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about some possible comparisons that we can make to this communal table of remembrance that we're coming to today. And lastly, we're just going to talk about um, the greater things that Jesus might have been suggesting when he he gave us this meal to remember him by. What what things could he have been suggesting to us that matter today? Um, So that's what we're going to look at. So first, I want want you to think about your table briefly and think about in the last couple, couple nights, maybe you had a big dinner, maybe you had a big brunch, maybe you had a friend over. Um, a meal that you had, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the unique characteristics of that table that you were at. Who was there? What did it look like? What was the discussion like at that table? What were the traditions or expectations, you know? Sometimes there's a protocol. Maybe not at your Christmas dinner, but there's a protocol for what's supposed to happen and the order and this kind of thing. Think about those kinds of things. Who was included? Who was there? And then when you think about the table that you were at for Christmas, the big question after all those that I want you to think about is uh, what messages were suggested through that table about life, about love, family, and maybe even about faith. 
So as you're thinking about that, you know, your, your scene may range from a lot of different things. You know, we have a lot of different traditions, and, and you, you may have the elaborate, you know, uh, multi-course meal at a really fancy dining room table with multiple generations and discussion. That might be your Christmas experience. Or maybe, maybe you were in an apartment that wasn't decorated at all. Maybe you just had a friend over, um, and it was a simple meal, and you, and you watched a movie together. Maybe that was your Christmas experience. So I want you to think about what that scene looks like. And then, and I also know, you know, we always say this at Christmas time. I also know that there's, you know, many of you, you may not have a lot of Christmas traditions, and we always recognize that for many people, Christmas is a really difficult and challenging time of year. But I'm just trying to get you to brainstorm about the table. And as you're doing that, what I want you to do with someone next to you who wasn't at the table with you, so if you're sitting with your family, you've got to turn, you've got to turn and find someone else. I want you to share one of those characteristics of the, of the table you sat at, okay? So you might say, well, we, we always have this crazy centerpiece, and, it's, and we all work on it together. Or, or you know, we, we cook this really weird, funky thing that nobody would ever eat on Christmas, but that's what our family does. Or we always have a, a political argument. Um, or, you know, I don't, I don't know what your, what your thing was. But just think of one thing that makes your table maybe unique in, in any way. Um, it can be serious. It can be funny. And I want you to just share it with someone that's around you real quick. And if you're, if you're talking to one person, try and wrap up that first person, whatever that is, and let the, let the other person share now, if you can. And take, take another minute, if the other person hasn't shared yet. And when you're done, eyes on me, and I'll know you're done. That was pretty quick. There's always a couple people that are like, when you do something like that, they're like giving the family tree and like, my great grandma. They didn't even get to the thing they were going to tell you. They were, they were just, they were just getting started, but we'll move ahead. Well, I want you to keep that picture of that, uh, of that scene of the table um, in your mind. Hold on to it because shortly we're going to look at the unique characteristics of Jesus's table that he made. And we're going to kind of look at those together. I had, you know, we, we have a more elaborate Christmas dinner kind of thing in our family. And uh, I'm trying to think of, any, of the funny things that I could remember from Christmas night. There were a couple near, I guess you could say, um, issues. Right before Christmas dinner, uh, my brother's in town and uh, his, his girlfriend uh, came out. Her name's Charlene. And we have our, our youngest daughter, Brooklyn. She's uh, six months old. And Charlene was carrying her around right before we sat down. And then we're all getting ready to sit down and I look over Charlene, and she had, she had some, some um, stuff on her shirt. And, and I, think my, I think my brother was like, oh, Charlene, you have something on your shirt. And it was like, oh, it's, it's sweet potatoes. Uh, and I was like, from a distance, I was like, putting it all together. It all came together like in a second. It was like, wait a minute, Charlene was holding Brooklyn, something that looks like sweet potatoes on her sweater. I was like, stop. That is not sweet potatoes, you know, something like that. So... Brooklyn gave a little welcome to Charlene on her sweater, so she had to go change real quick. And then the other, cra- the other crazy thing that happened to me right before we sat down was a really simple job my mom gave me. I had to light two candles, just tiny little candles. Now, if you, if you know me, I, you shouldn't put me near fire. I know you guys always think it's beautiful. We have these candles and everything. I always tell John and these guys, get those things as far away from me as possible because I'm going to be the one that trips on it, and all of a sudden I'm man on fire playing the piano. Uh, 
so with, as, as far as fire goes, keep it very simple. My mom only had me light two small candles, so what could possibly go wrong? Well, it was the thing where I was trying to do it in one match, which I know with one match you should probably be able to light like 20 candles, but I was just trying to get it done with two. You know, and you're running out of match, and it's like starting to burn your finger, and you're getting the candle lit, and then, you, oh, you have, I had to drop the match in, into the candle, and, you know, that's, that's not good because that, that looks funky. And then it was underneath the centerpiece, and I was like, oh, that's going to light on fire. And then the thing spilt, and I got wax on my mom's tablecloth, and the wax spilt back on my face. And this sounds more dramatic than it was, but th- that's just a couple pictures from, from my scene. So like I said, you, I want you to hang on to that right now, that picture of, of your table. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But first we have to solve a more important debate, dilemma together. And I know you're going to say, where is this coming out of? But we need to solve the mystery between... What is better, Mac or PC? I know, I know some of you spent time arguing over this at Christmas. Maybe you didn't, but uh, my family had a good discussion. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you what happened. Uh, my, my dad, now I'm a Mac guy, and I'm not going to look down on PC people. I'm going to be very kind and loving and generous today. No, my brother and I are big on Mac, and my parents' PC is falling apart, and, and my dad is at his end, and it's like, Dad, before you call the geek squad out here again, that's what they're called, by the way the tech people that come to your house. I'm not just calling them geeks. They're actually called the Geek Squad. Um, you know, before you call the Geek Squad out here and have them fix that computer, Dad, you know, let us brainwash you into the world of Mac. So I think my brother and I had about 20 minutes to convince my dad, you know, and we were saying all the reasons. And uh, it actually worked. You know, it must have worked because the day after Christmas, my dad went and, and, and bought a Mac, uh, which is incredible, I know. We should clap, but that's okay. We don't have to. Um, <laughs> My, my dad did go and get a Mac, so this is huge for my brother and I. Now, I, I feel like I'm a nice Mac guy. My brother even admitted, he's like, I'm starting to get a little elitist about the Mac thing, and I know that's what PC people say, um, that the Mac people are a little elitist. And uh, I think my brother and I, we probably would like to think that we're extending the circle of the Mac family, but we're probably actually just, you know, we're only technologically accepting of people with a Mac. So we're probably, we're probably not being that inclusive. It's just brand loyalty. Now... Jesus, he didn't practice that kind of brand loyalty. Obviously not with computers. But he didn't practice that kind of brand loyalty with people. You know, when Jesus came and he set the table, he suggested practicing a greater circle for those who would be included at God's table. And we have to think about that. We have to start thinking about, well, what does that mean, a greater circle? There's a guy, Donald Crabill, and he calls this, this concept the upside-down kingdom. We, we see it all the time with Jesus, Right? that the last shall be first, that the least shall be greatest. I mean, we could go on down the list of, of the things Jesus says and what he does to expand the circle. So, again, if we're saying, what are we talking about when we say that kind of thing? Well, what did Jesus' table look like? Consider Jesus' radically open table. Just a few examples here. Think about at the table in Bethany when Jesus welcomed and honored an unwanted sinful woman and her gift. Think about at the table with the the, the twelve when Jesus dealt patience in the face of direct betrayal. And at the table, Jesus, he, he still met with the people who knew the religious rituals, but they had hard hearts, right? You know, we sometimes like to remember that, that Jesus, while well, he brought in all these kind of um, people on the margins, Right? to the table, but he was still with the religious people, the rich people. He, he met with them all, even though he knew some of their hearts were hard. We see near the table when Jesus washed the feet of his, his students, right? His Talmudim, as Todd would say, 
and a stunning symbol. And at the table, Jesus warned us to be humble, not to, not to raise ourselves onto a pedestal. And in fact, he reminded us that he was among those who served the table, not those who sat at it. So, when we talk about expanding the table to others, we're talking about this not just to people, but Jesus is trying to expand our concept of, of faith. It's an upside-down kingdom, as Crable would say. It's a puzzling table. We have prostitutes, tax collectors, religious leaders, the poor, the affluent, the religious, the diseased. And many from this diverse body crossed Jesus' path. They sat at his table. And so what you get when, when you're around Jesus and when you're around the people he's with is, is a very unexpected mix of people. It's an unexpected stew. It's like that thing Grandma made a couple days ago, right? Just kidding. The stew at Christmas with all the stuff in it. And what's in there? No, that's Jesus' people. That's Jesus' people at his table. It's this mix. And of all these people, many learn to practice his way. I just got back from uh, Memphis a few weeks ago. Never been in that part of the country. Had to drive across Arkansas. It was a little intense. Um, And we were at a church in Memphis, and it's an incredible city with a lot of history. And one of the stories that came out of uh, Memphis was uh, I think it was the late 1870s, and there was, uh, I think it was yellow fever that, that hit Memphis, and it, and it killed thousands. Uh, they say that that was a, a time when most who were in Memphis, they fled to St. Louis. They went up the river um, because everybody was dying, and industries left, and families left, and thousands died. It, it, it devastated the town of Memphis. Um, and, and as they were telling this story to us when we were there, they said, well, and, and you wouldn't believe who, who stayed behind to uh, care for the people who were dying. Can you, can you guess who it was? I heard some whisperings. Can you guess who maybe stayed behind to care for the dying? And remember, if you stayed behind, you know, they said you, you, were, you were condemning yourself to death, you know, because you were going to catch if you didn't get out. The people they said who stayed to care for the dying when this happened were the nuns and the prostitutes. Isn't that an incredible picture? I just, that just stuck with me as, as an incredible picture of, wow, really? You know, the nuns and the prostitutes were the ones who were able to stay. And they prepared a table and cared for the dying. Wow, that's unbelievable. We, we hear a story like that and we, and we reflect on Jesus and the table he set, the people that he was with. And we can begin to get a picture of uh, what Peter Rollins calls suspended space. And that's a time when, when we together practice what Paul said in Galatians, when Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You belong to Christ. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and we could expand that, male nor female, to so many other things. These are the kinds of distinctions that Jesus put aside and said, no, all are one at my table, and that we're called to do too. And so I asked you earlier about your table, your scene, your Christmas. And I asked you what messages about life, love, and faith were suggested in that. You know, and I think we have to begin to answer the same questions concerning Jesus. What are the messages we get about life, love, and faith when we look at the table Jesus has, Jesus has set for us? And I would suggest that the meal of remembrance that we're about to participate in together, that the characteristics of that meal this Last Supper, they, they, they point to something greater than just food and drink. They lead beyond the meal of remembrance into how we carry out our faith. 
And I think that's part of what we have to carry. I think, again, if you weren't here when Dave taught last time on communion, you should go listen to it online. There's certainly a time to say this is a moment of reflection and remembrance personally um, for what Christ did when we come to the table. But it's, it's also a mandate, in a sense, when we leave this place, right? That we aren't just passively going through this, but we're, when we participate in this, then we're called into something greater as we leave. How do we respond to the message that we have been included at God's table? You know, we have been included at God's table. Let me give you a couple ideas, because I know sometimes we're always searching for, well, what could those things mean? How could we respond? Maybe it means we strive to practice reconciliation in the face of old hurts with people who aren't at our table. We reach out and we enter a relationship with someone on the margins, you know, the least of these, right? That would be expanding the table. We baffle people by talking, hopefully, in desperate situations. We maybe annoy people by by shining love where they don't want to see it shared. Maybe we calm the holiday schedule enough to be truly present with the people we love in our family and community. And here, today, we practice this suspended space. You know, there's neither Greek nor Jew, rich nor poor. You know, we could, again, say, we could say Republican or Democrat, old or young, gifted or simple, quiet or loud, Chatfield or Columbine. You know, we could, we could go through so many things, married or divorced, that we suspend those things long enough to say we are all one and included at God's table. There's one more story I'm going to share with you, then we're going to have communion time. Um, a story that happened locally here that I just thought did better of painting this picture than anything I could say. Uh, a lot of you probably read or heard this story, and I just thought it was unbelievable, um, unbelievably um, tragic and then yet powerful in the end. Uh, a family, Frank and Mary Maxner, I'm probably saying their name wrong, and their five kids, they woke up west of Morrison, um, and their home was on fire Christmas Eve. A lot of you probably heard this story. And they lost their home. They lost everything. um, And the family was okay. This is Christmas Eve morning. Their treasures, their things, their table, all gone, right? Uh, They received a lot of support. And I heard this story Christmas Eve, and then I don't know if anyone looked at the paper, the newspaper, the day after Christmas, and it was a picture of this guy down at the Denver Rescue Mission serving food. And so the story is that Frank felt so overwhelmed by the support that he and his family had received that on Christmas Day, less than 24 hours after their house burning down, he loaded up his, his family of five in the SUV, went down to the Denver Rescue Mission at a strange table, a table not their own, and served. He served former strangers, former strangers and the Maxners, people on society's margins, sharing a meal together on Christmas Day, all because of a house burnt down. A rebirth, I would say, out of a terrible loss. And there's so many themes in that that are strangely like those around the Last Supper. What a story, I think. What a story. We're going to do this this morning. If you haven't uh, participated in communion with us before, it's pretty simple. We're going to have some music and a time of reflection. Uh, I always say, and I know Dave said this last time, that I, I think... Uh, it's best not to rush. I think it's always good to have a time of consideration in your hearts, a time of prayer with God, and then as you, as you feel ready, you can just move forward and uh, make a line. I would ask 
Uh, I know there are always some people that uh, have some difficulty coming down, walking down. So if you can look around your row, and actually if you're one of those people and you'd rather have someone bring you uh, the drink and the bread, um, you could just ask someone next to you and help, help people around you that may not be uh, uh, wanting to come down. Um, but we're going to take this time to uh, pray, reflect, uh, sing, and participate together in this meal of remembrance. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you include us at the table. Thank you, God, for this place, this place in your scripture that we can, we can look at and say, God, every time we do this, we do this in remembrance of you. The night uh, you met with the twelve and the symbols of your, your body broken, your blood spilled. God, the sacrifice you made. Here we are, just days after our Christmas celebration, considering um, the baby Jesus and that you became a man and that you went to the cross. God, we enter this in awe and wonder as a community in this suspended space where there's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, any of those things, God, but all are one in you as we come to your table. We thank you not only for the symbol and for the opportunity to participate, but we thank you for the calling in our lives then to go out and expand our vision of you, expand our tables, include those on the margins, invite new people to our tables. We thank you, God, for this Christmas season. We pray especially for those who deal difficultly with this season. Um, It's a season where depression is um, a battle for so many. There are many who uh, have fam- family in hospital that I know and uh, others who are dealing with uh, fresh loss over the last year of family and we know that holiday times can bring those things out. God, I pray that your love would fill those people, even those people in this room as we participate together um, in your meal. We love you, Jesus. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.